Oregon, and he has a very powerful prayer ministry in his church, and he told me that I ought to do this. So I'm going to do this. It's my birthday this week. No, don't applaud. We don't have time for that. Uh, it's my birthday this week, turning 30 this week. And uh, Dennis, I saw you start that applause. You just moved way up to the top of my free breakfast thing right there. Um, anyway, it's, what's that? <laughs> it's my birthday, and I want to ask for a present from you, okay? I want to ask you to give me a present. Here's the present that I want from you. I want you to pray for me. Some of you will be willing to do this on the day of your birth, once a month on the day of your birth. So in other words, I was born November 3rd, and so that would mean that I would pray on the 3rd of every month. So like if you were born on the 14th, I'm looking for a 30th right now, especially 24th. Um, and a bunch of you have already done this on Facebook. I have a whole full slate. But here's the deal. You pray for me on that day. So every day that that comes around in the year, this isn't going to cost you any money or anything. But when it comes around on that day of the, of the, of the month, then that would be a special day that you remember me in prayer if the Lord brings it to your mind. And then I'll put you on my little Evernote prayer thing. You're on a special prayer team. And that means that along with my regular prayers for you, then I will also pray for you on that, that special day. And uh, so can I ask you for that uh, uh, birthday gift? It will be a gift that gives back to you because, like, if your pastor is well-behaved, wouldn't that be good for you? If your pastor is a holy man, wouldn't that be good for you? If your pastor isn't petty or sinful or whatever else pastors can get into, wouldn't it be a lot better for you if you had a real genuine prayed for pastor? Amen? So anyway, that's what I like for a birthday present. I'm getting another birthday present I wanted to tell you about. I've been asking for this birthday present for years. My little brother, Nathan, who I love so very much, and I would say that even if he didn't listen to all the recordings of my messages, my little brother Nathan, who I love very much, is 10 years my junior. And I don't know why this happened, but my dad gave him a book that was called Christianity Through the Centuries. It's a book of church history. It's a classic, fine, still in print book, Christianity Through the Centuries. My dad gave this book to my brother. He didn't give the book to me. No, he gave it to my to my little brother, his favorite, my little brother. He, he gave it to him. My dad, this is interesting because this, you, this is a unique book. Christianity Through the Centuries was, um, was a book that my dad happened to be reading when he was a student at Cedarville College on the night of November 3rd, 1958, in the waiting room at Green Memorial Hospital when I was born. And so my brother texted me yesterday, and he said, what was the name of that book? And I said, just happened to remember it. And so I have a very uh, good suspicion that I'm going to exchange my late version of that book for his meaningful uh, ancient version of that book, the, the, the 1958 version that my dad was reading when I was born. Church history is fascinating. It really is. As a matter of fact, this is a day in, in church history. Broadly, this is what we would call the Ref Reformed types for people from a Reformation background. This is Reform Sunday, November 1st. And that's what that All Hallows' Eve thing is all about. You can read about that. I put a little a message on Facebook. You can read if that interests you. Baptists, historically, don't celebrate Reformation Sunday because we kind of believe that we kind of skirted around the Reformation. However, it is historically true that Baptist life in Europe and America has benefited amazingly from the Reformation. So even though we don't celebrate it, 
we Baptists appreciate it. Amen. And so, and so today we, it is with a, with a, with a grateful heart that we realize that how the, how the gospel ascended back into the life of the, of the visible church and the gospel became historically key and central and important. And Baptists are all about that. Bible-believing people are all about that. Now, there was a church, and the, the, the church was in a, in a city that was a great city of the ancient world, and the city was called Sardis. Actually, this was a capital city of a kingdom called the Kingdom of Lydia. And they had a king who was wealthy, and his name was Croesus. And this king, Croesus, this wealthy king, some of you have used the term wealthy as Croesus, it means because they found gold and silver, and they were the first to mint gold and silver into coins in this, little, in this city, this great ancient city of the world called Sardis. And there was a cluster of believers in Sardis. They, they, they think they probably met in the home of a wealthy believer. There were, there's no remains of buildings of churches in the first century, of course. Later on, a basilica. Later on, the, Saint, the, the church of St. John, interestingly enough, discovered in the ruins of Sardis, which is fascinating when you think about that. But that probably a cluster of 30 to 40 Christians meeting in a home in this wealthy capital that, that had been the wealthy capital of the kingdom of Lydia now had been incorporated into the Roman Empire. It was built in a seemingly impregnable place, high on a precipice. That, there were even parts of it that they didn't guard. As a result of that, the city fell surprisingly twice. To Cyrus, who the Bible talks about as a world leader 200 years before he became a world leader. Did you catch that? The Bible talks about Cyrus as a world-dominating leader 200 years before he becomes a world-dominating leader. Another reason to believe the Bible is the Word of God. And then it fell again to Antiochus and to the Greeks later in the very same way. And then it fell again in a, in a unique way in a terrible earthquake in AD 17 was rebuilt after this earthquake. So it's significant when we look at our text today that the history of Sardis is interesting. It fell suddenly three times in the night. Later on, the message to the church of Sardis is you need to wake up and pay attention. And this historically would be something that the church would hear very, very carefully. So this is Sardis. In Sardis, there, uh, there was much pagan worship. There were 25 to 30 sanctuaries or pagan temples that they've discovered uh, parts of them, much pagan worship. They, they discovered a huge temple to Artemis. It, it's interesting that in about 1400, the, the, the city went completely out of existence, and it was in the year 1958 that they began to unearth ancient Sardis. There, there's a, there was a synagogue in Sardis. So it was a huge expatriate Jewish population in Sardis. The largest synagogue remains ruins in the ancient world in Sardis, a synagogue that seated a 1,000 people. And interestingly, it was right next door to the gymnasium, which would have been a place that normally Jews that weren't Hellenized or hadn't kind of compromised with Greek culture would not build their synagogue next to a gymnasium where they did uh, naked athletic competitions and other kinds of pagan things that would be very distasteful to, to devout Jewish people. And so it's really clear that there was a compromised but very large Jewish synagogue in Sardis. All this is going to come into play, interestingly, as we begin to read the epistle to Sardis or the letter that Jesus gave through the angel, through John, to the messenger, to the church in Sardis. 
It's interesting that there is no mention of persecution in the text that we're going to read today. This was not a persecuted church. In Sardis, there was no mention of doctrinal uh, error or compromise like the other churches. And we'll, we'll see why that is. And again, I mentioned that Cyrus was named in the Bible 200 years before he rose to power over Persia. The Bible is true. Cyrus conquered Sardis when a wealthy Croesus was, uh, was the king of the kingdom of, of, of Lydia. Uh, 200 years later, it was that Antiochus of the Greeks conquered it again. And then today, we find ourselves in a situation in the world that's a lot like it was back then. You guys ever seen the uh, little bumper sticker that says coexist? You've seen that? Raise your hand if you've seen that. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah. And what is that? Have you ever studied that? You realize it's like what people have done is they've kind of put together a word based on what they would call the great religions of the world, the different, what we would recognize as the religions that Satan raised up to oppose the true Christianity. There's a really politically correct statement right there. But all the great religions of the world are to, to coexist, which basically means that our religion then goes to the dust if we reject that Jesus is who he said he was, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. At this time, Domitian called himself, guess what? The king of kings and the lord of lords. Domitian, the ruling Caesar, over the time when the revelation was written, called himself the king of kings and the lord of lords. And resoundingly, the heavens ring with the song that Jesus is the king of kings and the lord of lords. But we find ourselves in an exact same kind of pressure situation to coexist. You and I are going to be pressured to coexist right next door to every imaginable kind of pagan belief or unbelief. And that will work just fine as long as you are not overt about what you believe about who Jesus Christ is. And we're going to read this passage. and When we read it, it's in Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. It's a short letter to the church of Sardis, but it's full of... Interesting things, and when we read it, I want you to watch out for a couple things. Notice that there's something that's repeated a number of times. The importance or the theme of the name is repeated in it. And I want you to notice, if you can, why is this church that says it has a reputation for being alive, but God says that you have a reputation for being alive, but you're dead? Why would he say that? What caused the church to look alive, but actually to be dead? Think about that. While we read in Revelation 3, 1 through 6, And to the angel of the church of, in Sardis write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. You have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful, strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect or complete before God. Verse 3, remember therefore how you have received and heard, hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief. You will not know what hour I will come upon you. You have a few names in Sardis who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, as they are worthy. And he who overcomes shall be clothed with white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
So here's the question. It's really not will you confess Christ. It's this. Will Christ confess you? Will Christ confess you? These are the five things that every letter has in common for the most part. One is there's an identity of Christ. Remember this big vision of the Son of Man is given there in Revelation 1, and then it dips back into that vision or it refers back to that vision whenever he addresses one of the churches. He says, this is, this is the part of what Jesus is like that's especially relevant to your church. And he describes himself. There's the identity of Jesus. There is a section, what did they do right? In this case, they didn't do anything right. There's the section, what did they do wrong? In this case, it's very chilling what they did wrong. There's the, the third section, the fourth section, and that is, what should they do to correct it? And the fifth thing is, what promise is given to those who overcome? And we're going to see that with Sardis, that when we answer these questions, they're fascinating. The first one, the identity of Jesus. What's the identity of Jesus to Sardis? He says, he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. The seven spirits, the symbolism of the seven spirits, we know there's one spirit of God, but there's the symbolism of the seven spirits that's given regularly a number of times in Revelation. The idea, whenever seven occurs over and over in the Bible, and especially in Revelation, it is to give the idea of completeness. And isn't it interesting that he says to them, you are not perfect, meaning you are not complete. He says that in verse 2. I have found your I have not found your works complete or perfect before God. This is what they needed. They needed the fullness, the completeness of what God has to offer them through the Holy Spirit. Jesus identifies himself as he who has the seven spirits. And then, of course, who holds the seven stars in his hand. This would be, again, the messengers of the churches. So if these messengers are messengers that are traveling around, there are only a couple of them left now as they're dropping off as they visit from church to church. And the messenger gives a letter to Sardis. And Sardis is probably a little surprised because they have a reputation for being a very lively church. And they have a a reputation for works, but I'm getting ahead of myself. What did they do right well, again, the, the passage here, this epistle to Sardis, is silent at this point. The other churches, many of them, says something about what they did right. In this case, people were impressed with this church, but God was not impressed. People thought a lot of this church. God thought nothing of this church. People thought the church was alive. God knew that the church was dead. So what did they do wrong? What is the condemnation? This is in chapter uh, 3, verse 1, and the second part. It says, I know your works. Again, over and over again, Jesus' first words to the churches are like, I know, I know, I know your works. In other words, this was a working church, but the works were all dead works. I know your works, that you have a name or you have a reputation to be alive. And again, whenever you're studying the scripture and you want to look for emphasis, notice things that are repeated and name, 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 name is repeated here. This is the name you have. This is the name I gave you. This is the name you really ought to be concerned about. And these are the people who really have a name. That's kind of what this passage is going to say. I know your works that you have a name. He says, I know. He says, I see everything. I evaluate everything. He knows everything about this church. He knows everything about our church. He knows everything about you. He knows everything about your family. He knows everything about your secret thoughts. There's nothing he doesn't know. Think about evangel. When people look at this church, what do they see? We often are concerned with our church's reputation. We want the church to have a good reputation. We want people to think highly of the church. But wouldn't it be horrifying if people thought highly of the church 
and Jesus didn't think highly of the church. You see, what's more important is not what men see or what they think, but what God knows. You know this passage in 1 Samuel 16, 7. The Lord says to Samuel, don't look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord, he looks on the heart. Why was it that this church seemed alive? Based on internal evidence and historic evidence, like especially archaeological evidence, scholars have made this suggestion about why this church seemed vital when it wasn't. And it's probably this. The internal evidence is later on, he says, if you confess me, I'll confess you. What does that tell you? It tells you they're not confessing him. And a church that wouldn't confess Christ in that century might have a degree of cultural acceptance. So if they're considered like the Jews, and often they were, unless they distinguish themselves by saying, no, we believe Jesus is the only God, unless they distinguish themselves by confessing Christ, then the Romans and the pagans would see them as a part of the Jewish group. And so if the Jewish group is very popular and they had a large synagogue and it was Hellenized, and the reason that we know the synagogue was Hellenized or it was strongly influenced and infiltrated by Greek thought is because they had like Roman symbols inside the Jewish synagogue. Like there's a carving of an eagle from Rome in the Jewish synagogue. This wouldn't happen in a normal Jewish synagogue only if the Jews had been Hellenized or influenced by the Greeks. So they were compromised, if you will. And if the church goes along and says, well, you can just consider us like them, then they might have a degree of organizational vitality. Nichols and Noses, pastors call that. They'd have money. They'd have a good attendance. But Jesus would say, no, you, you think you're alive, but you're actually dead. You're doing a lot of stuff, but, but you're actually dead. This is, I believe, what's going on here. If we take a minute and look in our Bibles in Matthew, it's fascinating that God predicts just a few years before that they're going to have persecution from the Jews and from the Greeks. This is in Matthew chapter 10. We look in Matthew chapter 10. Listen to what it says. If we read the whole chapter, it would be better. But verse 16, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep, In the midst of wolves, therefore be wise as serpents and harmless as doves, but beware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils and they will scourge you in their synagogues. You'll be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, don't worry about how or what you'll speak. It will be given to you in that hour what you shall speak. In other words, Christians should be prepared to face Persecution from Jewish and Greek sources, from religious and non-religious types. And then later on, you'll notice that it says in verse 32, chillingly, Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. Are you listening? So, young people, when we look at your Twitter feed, is there any evidence that you're confessing Jesus Christ? I think it would be good right now, if you're going to tweet while I'm talking, tweet something about Jesus. Amen? Let the world know you're a Christian. Don't try to mix in with the world. And I'm not just picking on kids. I mean, we've we grown up to the same thing. I'm on a plane next to a guy, and he's got a false belief. And I'm just like thinking it's going to be a lot better plane ride if we just talk about what we have in common. If I tell the guy essentially that I believe that if he doesn't change, he's going to go to hell... It's not going to be so pleasant. And we're really tight. I mean, he's sitting right there. So I'm tempted to say, well, I'm an author. That's true. You know, 
I'm a storyteller. Well, you all know that's true. Yeah. But when, when the Jesus word comes in, it's like, oh, then it's like, oh, do you have a snake in your carry-on there? You going to handle snakes next? Is that what's going to go on? Whoever confesses me before men, him will I confess before my Father who's in heaven. Whoever denies me before men, him will I deny before my Father which is in heaven. So get on your Facebook tomorrow and let everybody know that Jesus is your King. He's your Lord. Go to work and let people know that Jesus is your Lord. Don't be shy. Don't be afraid. These people, because they were afraid, I believe this is why their church kind of flourished. In Revelation 12 and verse 11, it says, They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And because they loved not their lives unto the death. Folks, if you're really a follower of Jesus, then you want to wear the ring. If you're really a follower of Jesus, you want to fly the flag. If you're really a follower of Jesus, you want to sing the song. If you're really a follower of Jesus, you want to not be afraid. It'll help you stand up and let people know. My dad taught me to lead people to Christ when I was about eight years old. And my dad taught me this. is After you lead somebody to Christ, one of the first things you need to do is tell them to go tell somebody that they're a follower of Jesus. And have them tell somebody every day that they're a follower of Jesus. Listen. When I give you ideas from my dad, they're like, take them to the bank. That's a great idea. You need to tell somebody you're a follower of Jesus. And take whatever you have coming. And every day, tell somebody you're a follower of Jesus. Young people, can I challenge you? You go out there where you are, where people don't know. The, and you let them know. Look them in the eye and let them know, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. Let them know that. You say, why, Pastor? Because it's going to toughen you. When you let them know that you're a follower of Jesus Christ, they're going to push back on you. Now you're going to have to study the Word. Now you're going to have to defend your faith. Now it's going to be really clear you're not like one of them. You're different. I just say confess Christ openly. And let's get it over, get it over with there. And then you kind of know, we all know who's who then. And it's going to come a time when you overcome them by the blood of the Lamb, the Word of your testimony, and because you're willing to die. So there you go. It's like this. Are you a... Real flower, or are you a silk flower? You look like a flower, but you say, well, I don't like the flower thing. Okay, how about like, you ever been someplace in a plastic fruit look edible? But it would be toxic if you ate it. It's not real. The church has got to be real. And the believers in the church have got to be real. And your faith has got to be real. You see what I'm saying there? I used to drive past this church in a town where I started a church, and I knew that the church didn't believe that, that Jesus was God or that the, Jesus was virgin birth. It wasn't really a church. It was an edifice with an organ. It had a big pipe organ. And I heard through the grapevine that they literally were spending $100,000, $100,000 from a foundation that had granted them this money in order to do a renovation on their pipe organ. And yet they don't preach the gospel. In other words, little boys and little girls that get raised in that church, if their mamas do what the pastor says, they're going to go to hell because they won't ever hear the gospel unless they hear it from somebody else in some other way. And yet they have $100,000 to spend on renovating their organ. So is that church dead or alive? That's easy, dead. So I would drive by the church going, Lord, you know, I'm just, I just want to talk to you today about that church that's not a church that has $100,000 to burn on its, you know, pipe organ, and your little faithful servant, Ken, that's on his way out to the Grange Hall to meet on folding chairs with a handful of people. I've lived long enough to know, and you that are in my family know this is true, God was alive in that little Grange Hall. People really did get to, to know the Lord in that little Grange Hall. At one point, I remember I had a small group Bible study with 20 people, 
It was, uh, it was you know, uh, Mike and Vicki Kirby, if you remember. And then Mike and Vicki bring a bunch of family members and friends. And we, we make a circle. And I, I work, I have to work to support my ministry habit at Nationwide Insurance in Columbus. And then I get in my car on Tuesday night and I hurry back to the church. And when I get there, I don't go home for lunch. I meet with 20 people and I answer the questions about, I'll never forget the day in, the, in Mark Boucher's swimming pool when we baptized Mike Kirby and Vicki Kirby and his brother-in-law and his kids. They're still serving the Lord today because he has true spiritual life. That's better than any pipe organ I have ever heard in my life. Wouldn't mind having both, right? I'm just saying, right? It's better to have life than to have a reputation for being alive. Like Samson, who thought he was alive, and the Bible says what he didn't know is the spirit had departed from him. This should never be true about evangel. This should never be true about the members of evangel. You say, I don't want that to be true about my church. Then don't let it be true about you. Don't let it be true about your family. If you're a woman, you influence your family to be alive with real life. If you're a man, lead your family to be alive with real life. If you're one of our yous in our church, you make sure that you really know Jesus Christ and you have the life of God in you. And if enough of us have the life of God in us, our church has the life of God. And people will know when the church has the life of God. They'll flow, they'll flock to the church because there will be truth there for them uh, to believe. There's a correction and warning that he gives in verses 2 and 3. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect or complete before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received what you've received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, I will not watch. I will come to you as a thief if you will not and, and uh, you will, will know what hour uh, I come You will not know what hour I come. And then then he's referring to the city that has in its kind of genetic makeup the memory of falling three times. And the stories behind that are so fascinating. Maybe another day, or you could study and read them. But I'll skip over how those cities fell. The stories are fascinating. But they, they fell suddenly, and they fell in the night. And this would have made this, anybody that was listening to get this letter from the leader, they would have recognized it's going to happen again if we don't do the five things he told us to do. And here are the five things. Be watchful. In other words, wake up before judgment comes. The city fell before at night. It fell as a sudden and devastating shock. Um, and because of a diversion, he says, you will not know what hour. This is, a, this is a, I believe, an enigmatic reference to the imminent return of Christ. He's saying to the church, you don't know in the hour. Always be ready. This is what we teach. Because the New Testament teaches us about the coming of Christ. Always be ready. You don't know when the plane arrives, right? Go to the airport. Stay there. You never know when the plane is going to arrive. You don't know. And then he says, second thing, strengthen what remains. Another thing, anything that's not dead, like, like you ever blow on the coals of a fire, tell the Holy Spirit, blow on whatever coals of life I have. You ever feel like you're kind of like spiritually not doing very well? Like you kind of like, kind of like spiritually cold. Say to the Lord, if there's any life here, Spirit of God, blow on it. Strengthen what remains. Take whatever you find, wherever there's life, find and, and encourage that. And then remember, this would be go back to the apostolic doctrine, the doctrine given by the apostles and the apostolic power. And it says about those things that both of these modify the same thing. Remember and hold fast those things. So in other words, listen carefully, evangel. How do we make sure that we're not a dead church? It's real simple. Go back to the apostolic doctrine. Where do you find that? In the epistles of the apostles. And in the acts of the apostles. It's the Bible. The New Testament. Go to the New Testament and go back and remember that and hold fast to that. That's it. Isn't that good? We can do that. You're a Sunday school teacher. You can do that. You're a dad. You can do that. 
Growing up, my dad had a little NIV New Testament beside his plates. In the, and when the meal was hot on the table, and Pierpont's take their hot food seriously. You can tell by looking at me. When the meal was hot on the table, dad would always say, we're going to read the scriptures first. And he just took a little bit of this little NIV New Testament. And over the years of my high school, it took him forever, just a little section at a time. He said, before we eat, we're going to read this passage, and then we're going to pray. And nobody complained that the food was hot. It was like, we're going to read the Bible And that is, folks, can I just say to you, if you're a young person and you're going, man, I feel kind of cold. I feel like I'm getting beat down. I don't know if I'm spiritually very strong. I've made mistakes. I feel guilty. I struggle with these problems. Look, look, go back to the apostolic doctrine, the New Testament. Remember that and and hold fast to that. You are not, you are going to, I've been around long enough to know young people, listen, you go out in this world, it's going to beat you up. But if you hold fast to the truth of the Bible, you're going to do well. If you don't hold fast to the truth of the Bible, it's not going to be good for you. So you get a hold of the Word, and you hold fast to that. And when you get up and you're in a distant city and your parents aren't around, you find a place to go meet with people who still preach the Bible. And if you're older and you're tempted in your older age when you have the unique temptations and the unique problems that you have as you get old to maybe kind of look somewhere else, go back and remember the Word of God, the apostolic doctrine. Go back, remember that. Hold fast to that. And the Bible also says, if you haven't done that, what do you do? Repent. What what is that? They say in Romania, I don't know if this is true or not. They say there was a time in Romania, and the Martins, you can fill me in on if I'm right about this. Brother Martin, you can fill me in on this. And that is that they say that often the Christians in Romania during a time of revival were called the repenters. Did you ever hear that? They were called repenters. The very thing they called Christians was repenters. So would people call you a repenter? I'm afraid of this. I really am. I think we, we, they would call us the people that, like, we, we believe this. You know, okay, okay. We believe this. Well, that's good. That's good. Um, but would they say, oh, no, those are the people that are so quick to repent. Those are the people that are so quick to confess their sin and repent. Those are the people that are so sensitive to their own sin, not just to other people's sin, but to their own. They're the repenter people. I believe this. The Bible repeats this over and over again. If we would like to have the life of God in our, in our church, in our homes, in our own lives, it's going to be directly re- related to how sincerely and frequently we repent. Whenever God shows, I mean, if you're like I am and you study these passages, I just get beat up every week. That's before I preach on them, you know. It's just read them and you're like, oh, Lord, there are plenty to repent about. And this is, the, this is the way it's like gas in a tank. Now, what's the reward that's coming? What's the reward? The reward that's coming, verses 4 uh, through 6, 4 through 6. If you have, a, you have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. And he who overcomes will be clothed with white garments. I will not blot his name from the book of life. There's an ominous thought. But I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says of the churches. Okay, here you have again a reference to the perseverance of the saints. He who overcomes. Who are those who overcome? Well, the Bible gives us a clear definition of that in 1 John chapter 5, verses 4 and 5. Whatever is born of God overcomes the world. If you're overcome by the world, you're not born of God. Write that down in your notes, right? If you're overcome by the world, don't go around calling yourself a Christian. You're not a Christian. You don't lose your salvation. You never had salvation. 
People who have salvation have the life of God in them, and it's a, it's a powerful, miraculous dynamic that's never going to go away. And it draws you inextricably back to Christ if you do happen to stray, or he may kill you and take you to heaven prematurely, as it says in the passage about the communion. Whoever, whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world? He who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Who are the overcomers? The ones who are saved by grace through faith. They are the overcomers. Now, this is important. Don't expect to be in the majority. What, is that, what does Jesus say here? I have a few names in Sardis. And that's always there's a remnant. Always a faithful remnant. So in Ezekiel. So in Romans. And, and chapter 11. A faithful remnant. And, and we, we don't want to expect to be in the majority. You want to be, expect to be popular. If you want to walk with the Lord, you need to realize you just, people are going to think you're weird. People, just, please don't just be weird. You know, I mean, that's different, you know. But, but people are going to think you're weird because you believe in the Lord Jesus. Don't expect to be in the majority. And then don't expect to avoid suffering. This is implied here. And don't think that you can be silent or neutral. You can't be silent and neutral and still be a follower of Jesus Christ. You see my wedding ring? I've had it on since September the 8th, 1979. Don't take it off. A couple reasons. A, my wife would kill me. B, I, will, I want everybody to know I'm married to Lewis. We were running the character in, and we had a bunch of linemen come in because we had a power outage. And they all went out on the town that night, and there was trouble in one of the rooms, and I happened to go up to service the room. And to my horror, I noticed that a man had taken off his wedding ring when he went out to the clubs and bars, and he left his wedding ring laying on the sink. Are you horrified by that? Yeah, you should be, but that's what Christians do all the time. Oh, I'm a Christian, but let's not be carrying a Bible around. I'm a Christian, but I don't want people to know. I mean, that might cause me trouble. Hey, get yourself in some trouble. It'll be good for you. Don't be foolish. Just go out there and just own Christ. Everybody can be overt about whatever they want to be overt about today. Have you noticed that? You can wave a banner about whatever crazy thing is going on in your life. The only thing you're not allowed to say is that you're a follower of the one true God, Jesus Christ. You're in a place today where you're allowed to say that openly. Jesus is Lord. He's the King. He's Lord and King. But He's Lord and King even when you leave this building. So let people know that that's true. And what is this thing about white garments? It's interesting. There were so many pagan groups in Sardis. There was a pagan group, not in Sardis. It was in Sardis and other places. And, and they had uh, a goddess, Sybil. And they had a, a processional that would go to the temples. And they would dress in white, which is common. They would dress in white and they would go to these temples. But they would also, in a way that I'm not going to describe in public mixed company, they would mutilate themselves in terrible ways. And, they, and the, so the priests would mutilate themselves and they would... They would um, violate themselves so that they would bleed and and it was said that if you got the blood of the priest on you on your garments that you would be favored by the goddess this is what the people would read when they read this letter he says he who overcomes and by the way it says um, there are a few names in sardis who have not defiled their garments they will walk with me in white for they are worthy he who overcomes will be clothed with white garments. These are people who don't have soiled garments. This would be true in, like, to apply that to us. You wouldn't have the, you wouldn't have the markings on your garments of your flirtation with the world. 
with your flirtation, with things that are, but you'd be open and overt about following Jesus. And what is this about the name blotted out? In that time, throughout the, the world where Jewish people were, they had a, 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 a tradition to recite these 18 benedictions every day. And they added to the 18 benedictions this, what they called the curse of minim. And it went like this, to quote it, may the Nazarenes, that's a reference to Christians, May the Nazarenes and the Minims suddenly die, and may their names be blotted out of the book of life. This is what the Jewish people, this is what the Jewish people at that time would have regularly said to those that were Christians. They would regularly have heard and let their names be blotted out of the book of life. And what Jesus is saying to them is, that's impossible. That's impossible. That doesn't happen. If your name's in the book of life, it stays. You say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Isn't it threatening? No, no, this isn't a place for threatening. Look at all the letters, and when it gets to this point in the letter, what is it? Is it a threat or is it a promise? I'll help you. It's a promise. Every time you get to the end of one of these letters, the overcomer thing is attached to not a threat, but the threats are earlier. It's attached to a promise. This is not a threat. Hey, I'm going to block. That's what the Jewish people were doing to the Christians. They're saying, if you don't follow us, we'll see to it. Your name is blotted out. Jesus is saying, like he does, all throughout all these letters, he's coming and saying, if I put your name in the book, nobody's going to blot your name out of the book. Can I get a witness on that? That's exciting. Amen. So there you have it. In the book of life, we'll talk about more another day. So can I ask you a question? Who's your king? There's emperor worship in, in Sardis. An inscription was found to Domitian, calling him king of kings, lord of lords. Who's your king? Think about that just for a minute. There's a letter to the church in Taylor, right? If there was a letter to the church in Taylor, it would be maybe kind of simple. It would be like, boldly confess Christ even if you are alone or if it costs you, right? And it would be, boldly confess Christ even if you suffer. And he says, then I will boldly confess you. What we want is we want Jesus to boldly confess us. Well, we've gone around for years being kind of secret agent Christians, Right? And it's going to get worse because more and more, as the culture that we're in gets more and more pagan and more and more prejudiced against us, more and more we're going to find out who the real Christians are. And we trust that what will happen is that God will stir up within you a conviction, a vision of the Son of Man that's so powerful and so convicting that you would never deny him no matter what. So it kind of leaves a question in our mind. And the question would be, so what about the church of Sardis? Did they, what did they do? Is there any evidence that they repented? Or is there evidence that God judged them? It's interesting, there's no biblical evidence, but there is some historic evidence that suggests that maybe they did repent. Because one of the church fathers was a fellow whose name was Melito, and he was a very, uh, he was a very uh, um, prolific writer, as a matter of fact, they say that one of the first, the first known commentary on the book of Revelation was written by the second leader of the church in Sardis, which would not have been the messenger to the church, but this Melito was the second messenger. So in other words, the messenger to the church of Sardis probably passed the baton of leadership to Melito, who wrote a commentary on Revelation, who was very orthodox in his belief about who Jesus was, 
who is very orthodox in his participation in the, the understanding of the Old Testament canon. In other words, there's good historic evidence that there was a period of time that the church in Sardis listened to the message that Jesus gave them and had a time of revival. Wouldn't it be wonderful? Was anybody here would say, if, if God wants to give me revival, I don't want it? Well, of course not. But isn't it true? He wants to give us life. Could your family use a little revival? Could your heart use a little revival? I will be open and honest. Our church could use some revival. I'm always up for that. God, revive us again. Remember the old hymn, fill each heart with thy love. May his soul be rekindled with fire from above. God, revive us. Revive ourselves. We'll, we'll repent. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches.